You are listening to the Well and Simple Podcast with your host, Marissa Zabo. All right. Hello and welcome to the Well and Simple Podcast. I'm your host, Marissa Zabo, and I am thrilled to be back again with a very special guest, Amanda Getty. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited. Thanks for coming back. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so happy to have you. I'm sure this is going to be a great conversation again. Um, And I know you had a really busy day today, so I really appreciate you bouncing from one thing right to this. No, it's, you know, this is the type of stuff that I get wicked excited about. So awesome. Um, I'm all for it. Sounds good. Fantastic. So let's see. The last time you were on, we talked about bodies jiggling and you know talking about your body in front of your kids and all kinds of great stuff like that um I wanted to keep this one a little bit loose um I mean the last one was two I guess and it just kind of flowed so fingers crossed that we're 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 good again (laughs) (laughs) but um I took your um the class that you did gosh was it really three weeks ago now there's no way. I think it was three weeks ago now. I think it um, was three weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. So it was called how you show up. Um, and if you ever get a chance to take something with Amanda, like do it now, like do it. I promise. Um, so this was, um, uh, it was fantastic. It was an online class and it was all about examining the way that you show up, you know, as, as a professional, as a fitness professional, instructor, whatever you are, and being really aware of your privilege and, and what you bring with you to the table and how that manifests and, you know, what kind of an environment that can create. Super, super powerful. Um, and I'm sure, Amanda, you can probably do a much better description. <laughs> just- no, I mean, that was great. I always love hearing, like, what people take from courses like that and like experiences like that because for me like I'll create in like my little like bubble right like I'm like I think this will be interesting and I want to make sure I talk about this and that and I want like but when someone else is actually experiencing it and absorbing it it is always so cool to me to for to like hear what gets picked up on right like yeah because even at its like core, like the two and a half, the two hours was really a talk on privilege and how our privilege helps us show up. But privilege manifests itself in so many ways mm-hmm. and is the common line throughout our lives from like the moment we're born to the day that we die, we carry these privileges with us. Yeah. Some like education may like come in or out, but a lot of our privileges we're just we're just born into yeah yeah absolutely I think it's not something that well some people aren't aware of their privilege but some people view the term privilege as like a dirty word and when you say like well that's your privilege speaking like I don't have any privilege um and I think it's just so important for people to remember like you maybe you weren't rich growing up, maybe you had to work, but what was the color of your skin? What's your sexual orientation? You know, those right. kinds of things that we take for granted. So. Yeah. And I mean, that goes back to the quote that I used from Jayana Khan that was like, privilege isn't what you have experienced. It's what you haven't had to experience. And like, I love that quote, especially in the lens of privilege, because like you said, people have this and I'm going to use my privilege to call this in as like the Catholic guilt version of privilege being like, you are guilty for having this. And there's this whole other, like, I can't have privilege because if I have privilege, it's bad. Like privilege is something everyone has. Like we live in a society that favors some and does not favor some and how you come out of the womb or the belly or however (laughs) you are born into this world that is kind of your starting point for how your set of privileges will play out in a lifetime like you don't get to decide what color skin you're born with but if you have a the color skin that is preferred quote unquote by society 
you now have a privilege to either bring more inclusivity or bring use your privilege to help others or you ignore your privilege and keep it to yourself <laughs> like, <laughs> bring that on I, it yeah 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 absolutely but yeah it was such a, it was such a great conversation and i mean I, I unfortunately I couldn't join it live, um, which I was so disappointed because I, I definitely, there were things that were popping up as I was listening to it, but I could tell by just kind of watching everybody else in the recording and seeing their responses that like, it definitely hit home for so many people. It was very powerful. Um, I think we don't, I'm trying, I'm forcing a segue. <laughs> Let's see yeah. how this goes. <laughs> you know, one of the things that, you know, we often overlook is the way that our privilege is infused in the language that we choose to use. Um, right. And then my, my favorite line in the whole wide world is the way that you always close your yoga classes with, which is the words you say and the words you don't say both have power. And we overlook that power so, so much. And as a nutrition coach, I think the way that we talk about food is a really powerful manifestation of that kind of privilege. And in particular, this like moralization of foods, you know, this is a good food. This is a bad food. Well, if you're eating bad food, what does that say about you as a person? Right. And, you know, clean eating. Okay. So does that mean that eating Doritos is dirty eating? Like what, what is that? Right. Um, and it's just, it's like, yeah, it's a fraught term and it's, it's bullshit and it creates this really false dichotomy, I think. Um, but it also has a really disparate impact on certain communities over other communities. Um, particularly, you know, talking about clean eating, you know, and the issue of food deserts, for example. Mm -hmm. So what implication does that have for people that only have access to a 7-Eleven for their weekly groceries, right. you know? Yeah. And I mean, the idea of how language create is a language is like how we verbalize our privileges. Because like, if you think about language, it was only you use a language to communicate with people who are of your same group, right? Like, at its core, like language is a tribalistic communication method. And so when you open the lens out to food and nutrition, you're still using those words as a way to, again, communicate with people who in quote unquote, will understand what you're trying to say. And mm -hmm. where that falls apart is this idea, like you had just mentioned of moral foods, and you're ignoring the cultural implications that food have food has always been something that has been at like the very root of every single culture i don't care if you're like whatever european or wherever you came from food is the center of how people came together yeah. and then if you're going to go ahead and villainize one ethnicities or one food type like you are automatically almost upholding a white supremacist version of what you should be eating yeah. because if you look at like medical studies that have been put out most most people in those studies are white straight-sized people yeah. or they're white people in fat bodies that are in a place of privilege to be able to participate in a study to be like hi doctor see you're running the study do i qualify what it's not taking into account are marginalized populations that like don't have that access that don't get the opportunity and to be a a part of anything that's really in the medical world and b don't have the historical trust of anything in the medical world <laughs> like yeah and good like, reason not to trust it right yeah and so we're creating these thought patterns of okay well like carbs are bad right that's like a a lie that i feel like i've heard my entire life mm -hmm. but then i look at like my 
mom is from Nicaragua. My dad is Lebanese. Like at the core of both of those eating cultures are carbs. Yep. And like, I remember as a kid, the first time my, my dad was like, I think my doctor told me I need to lose some weight. He told me to cut out the bread and we always had pita bread that was served with every meal. Yeah. Pita bread was in the middle of the table. All the other food was around it. And we all at least had like one slice, not even, not even thinking about it. Yeah. And I remember that time where my dad was like, we had to stop putting pita on the bread because my doctor told me I had to lose weight and that's where it was coming from. We all like did this moment of like, uh, <laughs> what? It was like a what moment. And then like, I think we probably stopped buying like five bags of pita and went down to like three bags of pita for like <laughs> two weeks. And then like, we're like, this isn't cutting it. Right. Because like, it didn't take into account the cultural way of eating. Yeah. That like, is a thing like yeah. you can't demonize someone for eating rice black beans and plantains in yeah. to like have them sub in like quinoa and kale like right. yeah kale didn't grow in certain places exactly. plantains did <laughs> exactly. exactly we don't have this like you know they're different. First of all, this the globalization of the food economy didn't exist for a right. really long time. Let's not forget that. They didn't have airplanes way back when. Right. But then, you know, just not having access, even in this day and age, there are still right. people who don't have access. And, you know, some people are going to scoff at this, but honestly, I think it's no coincidence that the foods that are most often demonized by diet culture belong to non-white cultures. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you used rice and beans as an example. I think that that's such a great example. You know, rice, it's a bad carb, right? Beans, they're carb heavy, so you shouldn't have them, right? They, I remember they always had like four points on yeah. Weight Watchers. I'm like, they're they're beans for Christ's sake. I remember I wanted to have chili and I was like, a bowl of chili is how many points now? Are you kidding me? You know, back in the day when I did Weight Watchers. Um, but you know, if you know something about nutrition, you know, actually like rice and beans is a great option for a nutritious meal. You got protein, you got fiber. Doesn't matter that, you know, white rice is a simple carbohydrate because you're eating it with a complex carbohydrate and protein. It actually works really well together. But when we boil these things down to these oversimplified dichotomies, it's like, all right. So, you know, these, these, people that this is a core of what their diet is, or this is what they can afford to eat. Right. Well, what, what is that doing to them? What are they thinking about internally? You know? Right. Yeah. Like, and it's funny that you had mentioned the like nutritional denseness of rice and beans. Like my grandparents, my grandfather is 88 years old and every single day they eat, they're from Nicaragua and gallo pinto, black beans, rice, there's some caramelized onion in it and they have half an avocado. That is yep. both lunch and dinner. Yeah. Sometimes breakfast because it's made in bulk. And like <laughs> there, that, that's what we ate growing up. Yep. Like it was something that like was comforting. Like when I go visit my grandparents, that's what we eat at least for one meal at a time. And like to now be in this space as like a 33 year old navigating what diet culture in the food world is i'm like they're in better health than so many other people than i know and like my grandfather's 88 still walks around the block and like they are very active people and like don't tell me like their food choices were bad because they're they're thriving and it's like when people are like oh well you can't have a dirty dozen fruit and i'm like what does this mean and they're like oh well that means that it was sprayed with pesticides and i'm like okay well how do you think your organic produce grew without being consumed yeah there's still a pesticide used so yeah. like wash your food if you're gonna have produce exactly let's not demonize strawberries that for the reason of being dirty, you can demonize the strawberry industry for like terrible working conditions and by using migrant labor. Yes. But don't demonize a strawberry. 
for being right? a strawberry. <laughs> Absolutely. Strawberry did nothing wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> the strawberry is not involved in like dirty dealings behind the scenes that nobody knows. Right? <laughs> like, like it, yeah. <laughs> it. It boggles my mind. I remember I was talking with someone I used to work with and they were like, well, you know, if you want an apple, I don't remember what fruit it was. They're like, I only eat my apples from Whole Foods. And I was like, why? Because I like, they're not for them. <laughs> I was like, that's like $4 an apple. Like you're, I don't understand the apples from Market Basket look just fine. They taste just as fine. Yeah. And that idea of like a hierarchy of a better fruit, of a healthier fruit of like, well, I need to make sure that like my produce only comes from the best place because I don't want to be filled with things that basically poor people are filled with. Like at the end of the day, that's what that comes down to. Like I have to spend $4 on an apple because I don't want the people's, the poor people's apple (laughs) for 50 cents. Like- As shitty as that sounds, that's literally as shitty as it is because there's no reason why an apple that is washed is any dirtier than an organic apple that whatever is over at Whole Foods. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's like one of the arguments that drives me crazy. And like, when I was first getting started and I didn't know better, like I thought like the dirty dozen list was like a thing you needed to abide by. And, and I'm going to do a Miss Busted segment on this because it's full. It is. Oh, yeah. The levels that they use are completely made up and deliberately so. And it, like you said, even organic crops are treated with pesticides. And we're eating pesticides everywhere, whether we know it or not, because plants naturally generate pesticides. Right. We're eating neurotoxins. They're called spices <laughs> you know um yeah. it's it's just it's, it's craziness and and again it's okay so then are we reinforcing this really antiquated thought of low-income people as dirty right by allocating them these dirty foods right yeah and that's really like what it comes down to right like Mm -hmm. if you look at like what the dirty dozen are like potatoes what the shit is a potato doing and it dirty is it dirty because it comes from the ground in dirt why is a potato cleaner than cauliflower how did cauliflower get clean and potatoes get dirty yeah like i it it's one of those things where we're, when we demonize food in order to like, when we demonize food and how we access those foods, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're demonizing people and people's need to eat. Yes. Like at eating is something that fundamentally everyone needs to do. You yep. need to consume food in order to live. And so if we're saying like, oh, well, you can't eat strawberries that aren't organic or you can't have whatever, and someone lives in a food desert and they're only able to get access to the food that they have, Mm -hmm. you're telling them basically like they're not worth it. Like they'll never be healthy. They'll never be whatever because they can't live up to a standard that was basically made up by white thin pseudo wellness people right you don't know where that the idea of dirty dozen and what is a clean 15 15 came from but like so that doesn't (laughs) seem like a medical or scientific research back anything yeah it sounds very um for lack of a better word or term, food baby being like, if you can't pronounce what you eat, you shouldn't be eating it, which like is laced in a ton of other privilege of like education and like, tell me food babe, did you know how to pronounce quinoa when you first saw it written down? Like, no, don't lie to me. No, she Don't lie. (laughs) 
And if she was as educated as, you know, she encourages people to be, that she would recognize that a lot of the ingredients she can't pronounce are just vitamins and minerals for the right foods. <laughs> and yeah. then you have this demonization of like words you don't know. Yeah. Then you go into a whole bunch of unpacking of like our education system and then like people's inability to like put their foot down and be like, no, I'm just going to eat this. Yeah. Like I'm just going to eat it because A, I have access to it and B, I want to. Yeah. Like there's, hmm, I could go on a while with food. (laughs) Same, same. Um, There's an account on Instagram. I don't know if you've seen it. It's food science, babe. And she's a food scientist. That's awesome. And she's amazing. Yeah, I I recently started following her and she literally just rips that stuff apart. You know, this thing that's been going on with the the baby formula and these these people that absolutely know nothing about food science and nutrition saying you need to buy European baby formula because American baby formula is bad. Um, Really great account, highly her. Yeah. Not being paid, I don't know this woman, but (laughs) food science. I'll definitely go give her a follow. And it's, it's interesting that like you say, like buy the European formula versus the American formula. And like, I remember, like I lived in Switzerland for five years as a teenage, preteen to teenager. And one of the things that we did notice was yes, the European standards for preservatives are very different, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean they're better. It just means they're different. So like Mac and cheese here in the United States uses a food coloring agent to make it that yellow color. Yeah. In the, in like the EU, they used a like paprika slash whatever spice blend. So like the mac and cheese tasted weird because like there's paprika in like powdered cheese, which like just whatever. But like there's, that doesn't make how that condensed powdered cheese is any better or worse like craft was craft is a brand that has yellow cheese so they were like okay we can't use yellow food coloring what can we use to make it yellow like that's not a better or worse that's just like yeah this is what it is yeah and people like be like well the europeans know what they're doing Mm -hmm. i'm like okay how do you know that and they're like well the europeans follow the mediterranean diet and i was like are you i was like let's 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 bring out a map here so yes let's let's see where europe is okay so if you're talking about like spain france italy greece turkey yeah those those follow the mediterranean diet because they're on the Mediterranean. They, yeah. It's not a diet to them. That's how they're eating. <laughs> if you go to Germany, you're going to get a lot of meat and potatoes because that's what they have. People yeah. in people in Europe, especially, especially before a lot of this like international food trade happened, eat the way that their land gives them the opportunity to eat. Mm-hmm. Similar to like I was saying like my grandparents eat rice and beans and like we people culturally eat what they need to eat and now here we are in the United States being like well which way to eat is best right. <laughs> like everybody how, how we do we know. eat <laughs> we don't know we've been a country for 200 plus years can someone please tell us how we should feed ourselves yeah and yeah. it we have lost this sense of respect for food because we've tried to almost like dive down too deep into what will make us uphold what the perfect quote unquote perfect person is according to like white ideals. Yeah. Like exactly. We have to be in, in like according to common society we have to be white we have to be thin we have to have a six-pack if we work on out like there's all these quote-unquote standards to meet and people are like well crap how do I eat to get that you can't eat to get that you need to eat to live eating is not a means to like becoming 
anything else other than yourself, right? Right. There's no food that's a fast track to abs and there's no single food that's responsible for weight gain right. or weight loss. It just doesn't boil down that way. Right. Yeah. Food is not something that can like just be wielded basically. And it is wielded as a tool of upholding what society wants, especially here in the United States, Um, which is why I feel like we see so much of this throughout the wellness world and throughout like the we want to eat, even if people are like, well, learn what your body wants to eat, but like make sure it doesn't want to eat this because like this is bad for you. You shouldn't have, you should try to eat all the whole foods. Don't drink soda. Or <laughs> have you tried using one of those seltzer machines lately? I'm like, you know, if I want a Coke, I'm going to drink a Coke. Yeah. Yeah. I had a Coke earlier today yeah. because. I shoveled and I was like, I want a freaking Coke. I'm going to drink it. Have it. (laughs) I'm going to do this. Like, soda is not the devil. (laughs) And I don't, like, I, it's one of those things where I have the privilege to be able to, like, have the option to drink clean water out of my faucet. And I have the privilege of being able to, like, look into a pantry that is, pretty well stocked at the moment so I get a choice of what I want to eat yeah a lot of people don't and like food scarcity is huge in this country especially among kids and so like and like kids in a pandemic who live might live in a food desert aren't eating (laughs) and we shouldn't be demonizing what they are eating because what they're able to eat is what they have yeah and like if it's between the food that they're able to get from 7-Eleven or not eating, who is like, who's someone to say they, what they should be eating? Yeah. Like, yeah. a fed kid is a fed kid. Yeah. And if people are truly wanting to give children like nutrient dense like foods, they need to address the systemic inequalities that led to the food desert being created instead yeah. of yelling at the parent being like, I can't believe you're letting your kids eat Doritos and soda for lunch. Like that, <laughs> that, yes. Stop putting the blame and the onus on the individual when it is something much greater than the individual that is creating those circumstances. And some people listening might not be familiar with the concept of a food desert. Um, so, and it's, it's complicated right. <laughs> in terms of, you know, causation and the creation of these food deserts, but essentially there are areas that they're predominantly low income. They're predominantly inhabited by people of color, whether it's, you know, different, different cultures, different communities, but they, there are no grocery stores right. <laughs> and within an accessible radius is basically right. what it is. Um, and this obviously creates a situation where it's guaranteed that these people living within these food deserts will have worse health outcomes because they don't have access to, you know, these, these so-called clean foods. Um, you know, they are going to have more, more issues and they're, they're just going to be able to, they got to eat what they can get. Right. Yeah. And like one of the biggest things, and you touched on this a little, not only is it that they don't live close to a grocery store, but it's that they can't get to the grocery store. So a lot of people, and it could be that people don't know this, but access to a car is not as accessible in urban areas as a lot of people believe. So there's not even a way for people if it is a mile or half a mile, yeah, you could walk the mile, but how much food are you going to carry with you for a mile? Exactly. Like that's, you can't, it's a much bigger problem that was spurred also by like 
city developers who redline certain areas. And like, if you're in Boston, I encourage you to look at the MBTA map, overlay it over Boston. Yeah. <laughs> and see how there are literally two lines that go into Dorchester and Mattapan, and they're the furthest points apart. Yeah. So everyone in the middle has to go at least a mile to get to the nearest T-stop, which isn't by anything. Right. Right. And one of the things I had mentioned in that training was like the life expectancy. Like if you are in the Boston area, Boston Back Bay is like one of the most affluent areas in New England, probably. Oh, but sure. the, yeah. the um, life expectancy in Back Bay is 92. And if you go two miles into Roxbury, the life expectancy is like 56. Yeah. Like that's huge. It's huge. And it's gross. It's terrible. It's, it's something that was caused. And now people are like, well, how do we fix it? And it's not an easy fix because there's been generations of violence. There's been generations of neglect that have just manifested in these spaces that like throwing up a grocery store isn't going to solve the problem. No. And a lot of people are like, oh, well, like, why isn't there a grocery store there? Hmm. Well, $3 million question. (laughs) Like, Tell me, as a white business owner yourself, would you take the risk, the quote unquote risk, to open in a space where 20% of people have cars, the median like income is in the $30,000 range, like on paper, it wouldn't pass the whole food, quote unquote, whole foods test where like, they're like, we go into the richest area so we know where to make the biggest profit. Yeah. And so it continues this cycle, which at the end, like you're just left with this cycle of bad, quote unquote, bad foods and yeah. this perpetual system that has these kids growing up thinking that like they are, quote unquote, dirty because they're not eating what people online are saying they should eat, that they're unhealthy because they're not able to like keep up with their the people that they're seeing on Instagram or on TikTok who are might look like them but have access to different foods and things like that like you send people into these spirals where like food is now not nourishment but it's harm and that's not what food is but we with our definitions of good foods, bad foods, all these other things, like we just keep spinning around down the spiral and people can't get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's. I think this is a good transition into the concept of like what we each consider healthy and healthy eating. Right. We throw this term around, like it's just got this uniform meaning, right? You need to just eat healthy, whatever that means. Um, And like, you know, it's difficult. Like there are definitely limitations to language. I will say that. Like, I mean, as a nutrition coach who runs my own social media, I'm constantly like, I don't know another way to say this. So I'm just going to say healthy eating because I literally can't, (laughs) like there's no other way, but you really need to consider the assumptions that you're making when you use the word healthy. Yeah. And um, like that brings me to like the definition of health, right? And the who, the world, the World Health Organization, not the band who, um, which <laughs> someone was like, the who has a definition of health? And I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> um, health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and it is not merely the absence of disease, which gets lost, right? When we talk about healthy food, yeah. if we think about, if we think about this definition, like in apply it to food, is consuming this piece of food giving me a physical benefit? Sure. Maybe. Yeah. Is it making me happy? 
or is it making making me spiral mentally? And is it being a part of my social well-being? And I think what if we talk about food in those three parts, we can talk about healthy food because health doesn't necessarily just live in the physical manifestation of physical health, right? Yeah. Like you can't tell whether someone is healthy or not just by looking at them. Just right. like you can't tell whether someone's food is healthy or not just by looking at it. Right, <laughs> like, right. We, and I think the general we, especially in like the health and fitness area, we talk about health really in just this physical sense. Yeah. We yeah. just look at like, okay, A plus B equals my body looking this way or my body feeling this way. And we might slowly be starting to come back into like the mental repercussions of that. But we really have ignored the social well-being part of this definition. And like talking about how like food and health has impacted different people depending on where they live, that's acknowledging that social well-being part, but we're not doing anything about it. Right. <laughs> yeah, acknowledging is one thing, right. the actual doing. Right. Like, great. We know that places have food deserts and don't have access to, you know, produce. How did we socially get here? Yeah. Oh, wait. Here's a whole bunch of systems. And then it's almost like we get down into a rabbit hole and people are like, well, I can't do anything out of my control. Right. It's overwhelming to just eat your clean 15 foods and like focus on yourself. And then we like revert back to the complete opposite because we're like, we are just going to live in our bubble because yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if we actually utilize that expanded definition of, of health and consider, okay, complete mental, physical, and emotional well being whole lot of us are going to be realizing, oh, so maybe I'm not really healthy after all. Yeah. And like, I think especially being living right now during the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen those inequalities magnified. Yeah. Especially when it comes to kind of this demonization of food and this like, holy grail of what health is right now like it's very classist it's very much well I want to opt out or I want to opt in or I'm just gonna eat my spirulina and call it a day and like at the same time like you have kids in Everett walking to the National Guard trucks to get potatoes and food yep like there's two stark realities that are happening here and it can be very hard for especially here in the north shore where we typically are more affluent and we are not in a food desert i don't believe technic i think there lynn might have a food desert sure lynn yeah maybe Uh, part of peabody and like that's that says something right like we we have the privilege of being able to go to the grocery store or order there was a part right where during the middle of the pandemic they're like please don't leave utilize instacart i was paying like 50 dollars more a grocery run to have someone go pick out my food and deliver it to me yeah yep (laughs) as like there got to be a time where i kept i checked the bill and i was like what the hell what did i order but i was like okay but that's a huge privilege yeah. because I didn't have to go to a food bank. I wasn't reliant on having to risk my health to go grocery shopping. Yes. And like looking back, I remember thinking like, I feel terrible having someone else do my grocery shopping for me, but they're telling me to stay home. And that's my privilege of being able to send someone who needs money to feed their own family in yeah. the middle of a pandemic to go fucking grocery shopping for me. Yeah. Yeah. Like that in and of itself is that inequality of food, of social status, and of probably where they lived also. Yeah. 
Like, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. When you think you're talking about it, it, I mean, when you think about it, we're, you know, basically being told it is your duty to exercise your privilege and use Instacart so somebody who needs money can go expose themselves to COVID and deliver. It's, it, right. it's mind boggling to think about it that way, right? Yeah. And then like people would still complain being like, oh, I didn't get my organic blahs. I'm like, you, we sent someone else out there. Yeah. Sorry you couldn't choose which organic bananas you wanted and you got Chiquita normal bananas. Like <laughs> you're not gonna eat the peel anyway. Like, I don't know. The only thing my, my, Rowan, my dog is the only living thing that I know that can tell the difference between an organic banana and a non-organic banana. Cause he will eat the organic banana and will not eat the, the non-organic banana. Five bananas. <laughs> you have a snobby dog. <laughs> what the hell is this? But it's, it's one of those things that like, when we think about how we feed ourselves, oftentimes we don't think that that choice of what we're going to choose to eat that day is rooted in privilege. Yes. And that the privilege of being able to have a choice of where to shop, what to eat, how you're going to cook it, when you're going to eat, like those are things we take for granted that we shouldn't. Yeah. Because there are still so many people that don't have that privilege. Mm. And if they do have the privilege of having food, they're oftentimes confronted with this morality crisis of like, am I a bad person for giving my child processed food? Because everyone is telling me that like, I'm going to harm my child because I'm trying to feed my child what I have access to. Yeah. Or I'm feeding my child the what I grew up eating because culturally this is what we eat, but mm -hmm. this is now demonized by keto or Atkins or whatever yeah. thing. Whatever crap is. Right. <laughs> Doesn't fit your macros. I don't know. Right. <laughs> How many macros is a whole plantain? Like, I, what, are, what are we talking about here? <laughs> and there was an article on keto, like demonizing plantains as like this bad, and that's I think why I keep bringing up the plantain because growing up, like we had fried plantains with a little like block of cheese. And like, that was like, Sounds and delicious. sometimes it was like jam on top. Like that was, that was a thing. Yeah. But reading it, I was like, that's bad. Why? What? And like, I caught myself. I'm like, why did I just say plantains were bad? Like, why is this person who has, who's, right. who's trying to tell me to eat a certain way, convincing me that this food is bad? Right. The person who is telling you to put your body into ketosis, which is a survival mechanism, right? Is telling you that plantains are bad. Right. Okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And. <laughs> I, for a hot second, we're like, wait, what? What did I miss? Because it's so easy to get caught up in it. Because, yeah. like, it is. we have, like, lost our ability to trust ourselves with what we eat, which I feel like is why we're, there's this huge diet culture vacuum, right? We get caught into this funnel and we can't get out because we're like, crap, I have yeah. to feed myself and I don't know what's bad today. Yeah, like, we like get convinced that like certain food will do this to our body and we can't trust our bodies because they'll turn on us at any given moment. Right. And, and you know what that worst case, quote unquote, worst case scenario is that we become someone in a bigger body, which right. is fucking, it's, oh, sorry, which is like bad <laughs> in of itself. Explicit label on it. It's fine. <laughs> like the fact that this whole industry and this whole concept of good and bad foods really just revolves around not being a fat person yes is yes. rooted in white supremacy and is rooted in full-on privilege that yep. like you need to be a thin able-bodied person to be considered healthy yep and like we had talked about before like you can't tell if someone's healthy just by looking at them like their physical appearance has nothing to do with their health status right especially if you talk about health in the definition of the world health organization yep. right? 
So like we've demonized a certain body type and said that you're going to get to be that if you don't eat our way. Yeah. Like that's, that's not right. No, absolutely. And this, I mean, this ties right in with, you know, this, you know, the, the pandemic and privilege and things like that, you know, I feel like daily I'm like, don't read the comments, don't read the comments. And then I'm like, oh, I read the fucking comments. But anytime you see a story about, you know, this young person who passed away from COVID and they were a fat person, right? The first thing you see in the comments was, well, maybe if they had eaten better, they wouldn't have died from COVID. Oh, it's because they're fat. That's why they died from COVID. And like, going back to, yeah, you can't tell somebody's health based on their appearance. Absolutely not. But this goes right back to, well, it's your fault because you weren't eating those clean foods. Right. right? Let's put the onus on the person again. And I mean, they could have, people assume, you know, I mean, so many freaking assumptions going on here, but you can't assume that just because a person was living in a larger body that they weren't eating healthy. Right. We're supposed to be shaped different. Right. People that eat better than I do. And they're, you know, considered obese based on BMI. It's insane. Right. And that whole, I mean, BMI is a whole other topic. (laughs) We could do a whole episode on that. (laughs) Whole statistic inaccuracies that are kind of rooted in saying like white men, male bodies are like the pinnacle of health. Yep. Always. Always. (laughs) Excuse me, I want to go vomit. (laughs) And it's so mind-boggling to me that we are more willing to place blame on each other for dying. Right. Than literally taking a look at the system that got us here to say, maybe something else is fucked up. Yeah. Maybe... Maybe Maybe it could have been contained (laughs) because we can only change so much, right? Yeah. We can only shift the system so much as individuals. The system needs to be changed at a much higher level so that when like city planners plan new cities, they're thinking about things like food deserts or not like purposely creating them or you know when they're putting in transportation modules not willingly omitting a section of a city from those yes like making sure that food is readily accessible is not something that should be considered out of this world no And and that's the thing that like it's quote unquote healthy eating is a privileged choice because you get the opportunity to choose what you're going to eat and I think that's important for a lot of people to understand because it's not people will say oh well it's so hard to like eat a healthy life but it's so worth it because like look at how I feel and I'm like no you're restricting yourself which is a whole other reason why quote-unquote it's hard but you have the privilege to be able to like choose how you're going to eat. You know, this, this mentality of like, well, I feel better when I'm eating organic or what have you. Like there's this thing called confirmation bias. And if you believe that a certain outcome is going to come of something, then you're going to experience it. You know, I guarantee if you were doing this blind, you'd feel the same way if you ate a conventional apple versus an orange apple. Absolutely. And that's like, you'll see challenge groups or like accountability groups. And like, we're going to all eat this same way forever. Program. (laughs) We're all going to talk about how these foods make us feel, and it feeds into that confirmation bias. So then, when those people are left to their own devices, they're like, I'm tired. Do I feel tired? Am I not? What's happening? And I'm out 50 bucks because everything had to be this. Yeah. And And I shit my pants because. (laughs) Oh God, <laughs> Everybody else experienced this. 
my juice cleanse experience was basically that. I paid $120 to just poop for like four times a day. Well, you got most expensive poops that I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and it was terrible because I knew it was not healthy. And yeah. when going into it, I was like, this is not great. But I had been convinced that I was going to feel better because being able to get organic pressed juices from blog company that had all of these celebrities that did it yeah. was going to make me feel better. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. And I lived in my bathroom for five days. <laughs> I was brushing my teeth and pooping and I just like couldn't stop either one of those things. <laughs> it was an awful experience. <laughs> but you felt something. <laughs> there was a feeling. It's, I say this also knowing that that comes from a huge place of privilege to be able to be like, I'm not going to eat a meal. I'm going to drink some vegetables today that needed to be processed by someone that needed to be shipped, that needed to have a whole bunch of other touch points instead of me just feeding myself. Yeah. <laughs> like I opted out of eating, which like not a great thing. Don't opt out of eating. No. Eat food, no matter what it is, your food isn't bad. Your food isn't good. Your food is necessary. Yes. Just eat food. If it makes you happy, if you like it, eat it. Yeah. If you don't like it, if it's poison, don't eat it. Those are just good rules to like crap. Don't eat it. Yeah. Like, if it makes you shit your pants, don't eat it. <laughs> just good rules to live by. Right? Here we go. This week's nutrition advice. <laughs> <laughs> How bad do you have to poop after eating that? <laughs> I could talk about poop all day. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. But I mean, yeah, I think point being there's no such thing as clean eating because no. clean eating can land you in the bathroom all day and that's not clean. And there's no such thing as bad foods or good foods or you know, and what you have conceptualized as health isn't necessarily true for somebody else. Right. And those are all things we need to be cognizant of. So the next time you talk about, oh, well, I'm just doing clean eating. Think about it. Think about what it is that you are implying when you say that you're eating clean. Right. And then try a Dorito and uh, forget about all of that because it's delicious. <laughs> Oh man. Well, Amanda, thank you so, so much again for, for joining me for thank this. For having me. Session. Um, do you have anything going on coming up that you want to share? What do I have going on? Um, I am teaching with Vanessa Gatlin, a, as you are, um, gentle, restorative, intuitive movement, um, with partnership with Lively. So it's an underwear company. It's a free class um, on February 18th. So I think it's a Thursday um, at 5.30. So it's all virtual. Um, we'll get cozy. We'll do some um, gentle movement and kind of give ourselves a little self-love the week of Valentine's. And then at the end of February on the 26th, I'm teaching my next Healing Beats class. Nice. Um, so it'll be a little bit spicier of movement with 45 minutes of energy healing and um, sound healing. So that's what I got for February. That sounds so awesome. And then if people want to find you, best place? Best place on Instagram um, at Amanda underscore Getty, um, G-O-E-D-D-E. And that's where I'll be. Um, well, thank you again. This was such a great conversation thank and I so you. appreciate you joining me. Thanks for having me. Bye. All right. So building off of this episode, I think that it is appropriate for this week's myths busted section to focus on the dirty dozen and this concept of organic produce being healthier 
or safer for you than conventionally grown produce. So let's get into this. If you're not familiar with the Dirty Dozen, um, first of all, a little background on that. It is a list that is annually updated by the Environmental Working Group in which they list out 12 conventionally grown produce crops and rank them by quote unquote dirtiness. So they look at the USDA's annual pesticide data program and using that report, they take a peek at the pesticide residue detected on those crops and then rank them from there. And there's a whole lot of problems with this. Um, the first one, Amanda and I touched on this concept of calling this dirty, right? So what this implies is that conventionally grown foods are dirty. And so if you eat them, then you, by extension, are unclean, right? And really this, this whole notion, I mean, conventionally grown foods are not as expensive as organically grown foods. So for many of us, those organically grown foods are prohibitively expensive and we have to rely on those conventionally grown foods. And so to call those things dirty and less healthy and things to be avoided, it really feeds classist and racist, notion, racist notions that we have around cleanliness that go so, so far back in our history and are both consciously and subconsciously ingrained. So that's a huge problem there. And it also implies that these foods that are perfectly healthy for you are actually bad for you. So there's a lot of fear mongering going on with this as well. So that's my first issue with the Dirty Dozen is calling it dirty, which it's not, right? Unless we want to get technical here. Yeah, potatoes are kind of dirty because they're grown in dirt. You got to wash them off. So the second issue that I see with the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15 list, if you're not familiar with the Clean 15, you can probably guess what it is. It's the flip side of that, the 15 conventionally grown crops that the Environmental Working Group has decided have the least amount of chemical or pesticide residue and are of the least threat to you. So it creates this false dichotomy, right? Because here's the thing that they don't want you to know. All production methods use pesticides, even organic production me methods, okay? No matter what, whether you're eating organic or conventional, there are pesticides being used because pests, bugs, like to eat the same things that we like to eat. And we need to stop them from doing that, right? But the problem here is that the Environmental Working Group only evaluates conventionally grown crops for this list, this dirty dozen list. They don't look at organically grown crops, even though organically grown crops do contain pesticides. Now, some will counter that argument with, well, organic crops use natural pesticides, not synthetic pesticides. Again, that argument doesn't hold water. And this is my third issue here. Even natural pesticides can be harmful in the right of mouths, right? When you think about it, anything is toxic if you have enough of it, right? The poison is in the dose. And they're pesticides, right? They're intended to kill things. <laughs> that's what a pesticide is. It kills pests. Of course, that is going to be harmful in the right amounts to humans. Granted, it's not going to have the same effect on us that it does in ants because we're bigger and have more complicated body systems than ants do. And it's going to take a whole lot more of that to do us any harm. But the, this, this referring to synthetic pesticides only as harmful, but not the natural pesticides is it's just false. It's just a blatant lie. So that's another issue that comes up with this dirty dozen group. All right. Fourth issue. I've got a laundry list. We're going through them. You're in this now. Buckle up, cupcake. So we are at a point now in our technology where we can detect, and I say we like I'm doing it, like scientists and like government labs, <laughs> can't they can detect insanely small amounts of pesticide residue on things, right? We have advanced to the point where we're finding teeny tiny amounts of residue on these plants that we consume. And the EPA, 
the Environmental Protection Agency has established safety standards for the levels of different pesticides that are considered safe in our food supply, okay? These are very conservative standards and these are stringently tested. And the fact is that 99.84%, okay, that's pretty damn close to 100% of the pesticide residues detected in the USDA pesticide data program are in fact well below those already very conservative thresholds. 99.84% are well below. Let me emphasize well, like really, really low below those thresholds. And yet the environmental working group in creating their dirty dozen list doesn't actually relate the pesticide measurements to the foods they list to the EPA tested stringent standards. They completely leave those out. All they do is tell you how much pesticide is on a given food. So that to me is a very deliberately deceptive omission. And the whole purpose there is fear mongering. It is buy these foods organic because we found this much residue on it, but we're not going to tell you that you can actually tolerate 100 times that amount safely and then some. So that's another huge issue here, right? And this kind of leads into the next issue, which is that there are different standards for different pesticides, but the Environmental Working Group in creating their Dirty Dozen list treats all of them the same way, which they're different chemicals. And so they have to have different standards, right? Just like we can tolerate more of a certain vitamin or mineral in our diet than others, we can tolerate more of a certain chemical in our diet than others. But the environmental working group treats them all the same with this kind of blanket approach. And the fact is one might look like it is a worse offender on paper because it has a higher amount, but the safety standards might be way, way, way above that. So it's really deceptive, right? Next issue, <laughs> looking at residue data, um, you know, I mentioned that 99.84% of the pesticide residues detected are in fact well below the EPA's threshold. Well, when you look at the residue data on the USDA PDP, a lot of the conventional crops tested would actually technically qualify as organic using the pesticide standards because they actually contain so little pesticide residue. Like not even kidding here. These are conventionally grown crops they're listed as conventional because they're using synthetic pesticides, but there's so little in them that they would actually qualify as organic otherwise um, because it's such a small amount, it would be considered like, like accidental, not an intentional use of that pesticide. So that's how little <laughs> chemical pesticide residue is on so much of these crops. It's a, a whole lot of these. And then the final issue that I want to raise here is it kind of ties into the false dichotomy argument. Even organic crops, not only do they are they treated with quote unquote natural pesticides, but even organic crops have been found to contain small amounts of synthetic pesticides as well. So the fact of the matter is that you are not avoiding synthetic pesticides by only eating organic or by following the dirty dozen and only eating those particular foods organic. Even our organic food supply contains some synthetic pesticides because of the wind blowing, because it was already in the soil, right? There's a lot of different factors that can contribute to that um, kind of like incidental contamination, which I even hate to use that word because it has such a negative connotation um, and kind of plays into that fear mongering. So we have this list, this dirty dozen list, and it doesn't actually reflect good science and it doesn't reflect reality. It is really entirely fear mongering. And so what I want you to take away from this is that this is a really, a really, really problematic list. Number one, to say the least. Number two, you don't have to be super concerned about eating organic versus conventional foods. If you only have access to conventionally grown foods, if you only have the resources to afford 
conventionally grown foods. You are not dirty. You are not doing something bad for your health. It's fine, right? These pesticides, they make it to the market after extensive testing, and there are really stringent safety standards around these, and they are tested regularly, okay? So really, I think the takeaway is eat the produce that you have access to. doesn't matter if it's organic or conventional. And quite frankly, here in the U.S., we are very, very fortunate to have a very safe food supply. Obviously, that's going to vary depending on where you are. The water supply is a whole other story. But by and large, our food supply here is very safe. And we're very lucky and should really appreciate that because that is not going to be the case in other places throughout the world. And so we should enjoy what we have access to and stop labeling foods as dirty and clean, good and bad, healthy and unhealthy, because it's all bullshit. It misses so much of the picture and it's just, it's not accurate. So you don't have to drop $7 on an organic apple at Whole Foods. You can have a regular conventional apple that you got for 50 cents at Market Basket. It is totally okay. Um, so don't worry about the dirty dozen and definitely don't worry about the clean 15 either. So before I wrap this segment, I do want to give a shout out to the primary sources that I relied on for this segment. Um, the first is at Food Science Babe. Um, and if you don't follow her, highly recommend following her. I mentioned her during the episode as well. And then also an article from Forbes called The Truth About Pesticide Residues on Produce, All Encouraging, Some Inconvenient by Stephen Savage. Um, and that is from April 10th, 2018. So those are my two primary sources for this information. Thank you to them. Well, that is a wrap for this episode of the Well and Simple podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. As a quick note, if you are a fan of this podcast, you can help support this podcast and me help keep us going by visiting anchor.fm and finding the Well and Simple podcast page. And you can support this podcast with a monthly contribution of as little as 99 cents a month. Um, so if you're a big fan and want to throw a little support towards this podcast, we would so appreciate that. And as always, if you have a listener story or commentary or response to any episode that you've heard on here, you are always welcome to email wellandsimplepodcast at gmail.com. I may even share it on the next episode. So thank you again for listening. Be sure to tune in each week on Wednesday for a new episode. And I hope you jump back on next week. Mm-hmm.